It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll tell you, there are certain guests that I really treasure the opportunity to talk to, not only because they're entertaining, not only because there's so much information packed into all of our interviews, not only because there's such great people, but because you know that when they're on, the audience is incapable of changing the channel. One of those is a man that I've been uh, privileged to call a friend and a colleague for many years now. Not only is he the world's greatest film critic, having reviewed, documented more films than anybody in the history of film criticism, he also happens to be a published author and an authority on many different subjects, including, of all things, baseball. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back the one and only Jeffrey Lyons. Jeffrey, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. An honor to be with you, and I did not write that introduction. <laughs> hey, Jeffrey, I get emails from you occasionally uh, uh-huh. when you're up in the middle of the night responding to things that I've said on the radio or done on the radio. What finds you up in the middle of the night uh, that you're able to do interviews like this and to, to listen to me? I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. Listen, uh, maybe it's uh, my curiosity to see which of the ten questions will stump the person. <laughs> <laughs> Most recently, you, the, the guy had eight of them correct, but then you asked him a question about re- wrestling. Come on, Bruno you know, Sammartino. How about uh, Mr. Fuji, or how about the Iron Sheik? Well, but, you know, Bruno Sammartino is one of those figures that really transcends well, wrestling, though, doesn't it? You don't agree? I mean, it's almost like you know uh, who Joe DiMaggio is, even if you are not a baseball fan, right? I'll tell you, one day Marilyn was sweeping out in the gutter, uh, out of the gutter in front of the house, <laughs> and wearing short shorts. And Dominic DiMaggio of the Red Sox pulled up, and he was admiring his sister-in-law, and Joe noticed this, and he said, hey, Dom, yeah, and she can cook, too. <laughs> By the way, if you're interested in other great Marilyn Monroe stories uh, told in a way that only Jeffrey Lyons can, you got to check out a book that's a few years old now, but it's a wonderful book. It's called Stories My Father Thanks. Told Me, Notes from the Lion's Den, and uh, it is a terrific, beautiful well, the cover hardcover has, book. Has, the, cover, the cover has Marilyn flirting with my father, who is the gentleman that he was, is looking at her eyes. And behind behind Marilyn, my mother is leaning over, and she's kind of making a fist and making a a fake angry face at Marilyn. Yeah, it's it's very funny. And uh, it's not going to break anyone's budget because I'm looking on Amazon right now, and people can get a used copy for $4. So uh, people can check it out. That's the world we live in. But uh, it's one of ten books. I'm working on the tenth book now. well, Carl Sandburg, America's greatest Lincoln scholar, once said to my father, I, my father was a Broadway columnist, knew everybody, and I grew up in a house where they all came to dinner over the years. Anyway, he said, I wish you'd been writing your column during Lincoln's time because we would have liked to have known what New York was like and it would have made my job easier. So I decided, since my father's column was not around during the Civil War, to look up my father's columns during World War II. 
So I, pu- I have all his scrapbooks. Uh, he wrote six days a week for 40 years, starting in 1934. So I pulled out the scrapbook starting September 1st, 1939. And now I'm reading six columns a, uh, a week for four, I'm up to 1943. And I'm getting a lot of great stories that really have not been seen since then. I'll give you two quick ones. Remember Red Buttons? Sure. Right? Absolutely. Real, Love Red Buttons. Real Button. name Aaron Schwatt. Why did he change his name? But anyway, he, uh, he was making his Broadway debut in a play called The Admiral Takes a Wife, set in Pearl Harbor. Opening night was set to be December 8th, 1941. <laughs> <laughs> so the, so the, the, the director that Sunday called the cast together and said, kids, the show is off. We can't. And, and Donald and, and uh, 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 Red Buttons breathed a sigh of relief. He said, oh, I was afraid they're going to cut my comedy lines. The um, you know, looking at this cover of these uh, stories, my father told me uh, tales from the lions and seeing your parents on the cover. I don't know that I've ever asked you this, either on the radio or off. How did your parents meet? At a place, that thing called the Strawberry Dance. That's what I was told. Don, they 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 both grew, grew up on the Lower East Side. At the you know, my my my, my father was born in 1906. And my mother was born in 1910, though I never really found out from her. I, found, I got to look at her passport one time. And she, if you ask her how old she was, she'd say 21 plus. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what women did back then. And uh, my father was a lawyer by, by, by trade. I have a law degree, too, but I, I never practiced. And my father was a, uh, started, wanted to be a columnist. So he started to write the other columnists of the day, sending them quips and little items. And he got a scrapbook built. And then when the Daily Mirror signed Walter Winchell, the New York Post, which was a very different paper back then, sure. uh, signed, they wanted a, a, a columnist, so they had a contest. And my father beat out 500 aspirants and started on May 20th, 1934. And the first person he ever interviewed was Milton Berle, who when I met him first time, he looked at me and said, that's a nice suit. Who shines it for you? You know, <laughs> they, they, they used to call him. You know, he used to borrow jokes from other comedians. So he was known as the thief of bad gags, and and he uh, started then. And I grew up in a home where, you know, Hitchcock came to dinner, Hemingway, and and and, and Marlene Dietrich. And one time, my parent, my, my my family got one of the first TV sets. It was a vertical set. You push it up, and that, and my brothers and I were arguing really strongly over who gets to watch, watch which show. And in comes for dinner our dinner guests, Ralph and Ruth Bunch, the Under Secretary General of the United Nations who had won the Nobel Peace Prize. So my father looked at my brothers and me arguing, and he said, Dr. Bunch, you settled the war in the Middle East. Please settle the war in our living room. And he flipped a coin. <laughs> I think I won that night. That's the kind of childhood I had. Uh, that is, uh, that's terrific. <laughs> I was uh, interviewing Tony LoBianco the other day, oh, one of the stars of, of the French Connection, and um, <laughs> you reminded me that you actually are in the French con- Connection. Yes, you, you, pretty quickly. You know, my father played himself in a movie once with Joan Crawford and Henry Fonda, and the critics said he was unconvincing playing himself. <laughs> and I had the same reaction. But, you know, three years of studying with Lee Strasberg, and I get to ask one question. And whenever I interviewed Michael Caine about six times, and uh, he was in Death Trap, and I had, I had a similar cameo appearance there. 
But my favorite actor is Gene Hackman, the star and won the Oscar, the third choice for the role, by the way. Uh, Peter Boyle was the, was the first choice, and he didn't do it. Anyway, so I said uh, three years of Lee Strasberg, and I, I get a $20 check every year. <laughs> um, you, so you played yourself not just in, in, in the Michael Caine film and in, uh, in The French Connection. You played yourself in a bunch of different films, didn't you? Yeah, Wise Guy. I did, did that, and, and a couple of documentaries. But I, the one that really means the most, two things mean the most to me. I hosted a... A, a weekly section of the, the, This Week in Baseball, which was the big baseball show. Yeah, no, my friend Warner Fusell was the voice don't, 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 along don't, don't, with, yes, uh, he was, with absolutely. Uh, Mel Allen. Mel Allen, yeah. And, and I was on the uh, baseball tonight uh, on the baseball MLB channel. Those kind of things uh, are really dear to me. Uh, but, you know, all the years at Channel 11 and, and PBS and CBS and NBC and uh, now I'm on radio, so uh, it's they don't like white hair on TV too much, unless your name is Wolf they, or, or Anderson. They they don't, but it's fine. Give somebody else a chance. All right. Well, we're going to have pretty good weather this weekend, at least in our area. But uh, some people who uh, might be looking for some films to see might be looking for a few recommendations. Uh, we're talking with the world's greatest film critic Jeffrey Lyons. Oh, his latest book. That. Well, I am. I am. Okay. His latest book is Hemingway and Me. Uh, in terms of uh, films that are out. Uh, these days, either coming out this weekend or recently released. Anything that you particularly recommend people check out or anything you recommend they particularly stay away well, look from? For, look for a, I don't want to do that, but look for a film called Argentina 1985, which came out late last year, was Oscar-nominated, Oscar about the junta, which took over Argentina back then. And I, my wife and I were on a State Department-sponsored tour of Latin America, because I speak Spanish, and uh, your tax dollars sent, uh, sent me to... Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, and Venezuela, when you could go to Venezuela, and talking about American movies. But the junta took over uh, uh, Argentina back then, and that's, this is about the trial of the generals, and it's done very well. And a movie called Persian Lessons, it's, it's, it's about a prisoner of war in a, in a German prison camp, and he claims that he's not Jewish, that he's really Persian, and so the, the commandant of the camp, or the head of that, that part of the camp, the commandant of the kitchen, German officer, has spared the guy's life and has him in his office every night teaching Persian, teaching Farsi to him. But, of course, this guy doesn't speak Farsi, and he's making it up, and he's fooling. I'm not going to tell you what happens. But that's an idea. That's an unusual thing. It might be based on true give, facts. Give me the title facts. again. Persian Lessons. Persian Lessons. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I, I, these, are, these are available mostly on Amazon Prime now. Uh, there's a movie called uh, uh, Sweetwater, who was about Sweetwater Clifton, who was the first black player in the NBA, at least for the Knicks, in 1950-51, and he wound up as a cab driver in Chicago after. He didn't, you know, he made like twenty thousand dollars, no, two thousand dollars for the for the season, but uh, the shots of NBA basketballs in 1950s with the really short pants, mostly all white, uh, no d players, and no dunks were allowed. It's done very well, and uh, it's got a good cast. And, and even if you're not an, uh, an NBA fan, which I am, and my son Ben is, is on pins and needles these days because of his Knicks, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a true story. So Sweetwater Clifton is a forgotten athlete. He was the Jackie Robinson of, of the NBA. Wow.
Wow. Uh, Beautiful if, film. Fleetwater. I will check that out on uh, on Amazon Prime. You know, speaking of uh, great athletes and uh, pioneering athletes, Yogi Berra is someone that I've always really admired. Now, um, there's a new documentary out about Yogi Berra, and I'm glad to see uh, that Yogi is getting some uh, acclaim, even if it is ch- uh, posthumous, and you have a renewed amount of attention being paid Absolutely. to Yogi. Um, Absolutely. I know you, even though you're a Red Sox fan... I I know you were a fan of Yogi Berra's as well. Uh, have you seen the film? And whether Not you... yet, but I'll tell you, I will tell you mm-hmm. that my family knew Yogi, uh, and I'll tell you two quick stories. First of all, Yogi was a D-Day veteran. You know that? Yeah. He was in the third wave on Omaha Beach. So we were writing our – my brother and I wrote three baseball trivia books. So we asked Yogi to give us a quote, and, and when he said, Yogi, what was D-Day like? He said, it's a lot of noise, like opening day. <laughs> and then he he gave his wife Carmen a Christmas ge- gift one year with a car, with a card enclosed. It said, "To Carmen, love Yogi Berra." But my best my best uh, uh, story about Yogi was it's 1955. My father was making his nightclub rounds looking for stories for his column. I mean, he didn't use a leg man as other columnists did. He went and got first person to person stories and made sure that they were exclusive stories for his column. As such, he had to make rounds of restaurants every afternoon and then at nightclubs, uh, other other places. So he gets to the Copacabana, and there's a p- big police presence outside. Something's up. And he walks in, and Yogi sees my father and tries to keep him from entering. And he said, hey, Lenny, I hear you've been to Russia. Nice town. And <laughs> inside, what had happened was the Yankees brought their first black player, Elston Howard, number 32 in your program, to see Sammy Davis Jr. perform. And a bowler from a bowling team from the Bronx, who'd had many too many drinks, started spewing racial epithets at both Sammy Davis Jr. and at Elston Howard. And the Yankees' right fielder was uh, Hank Bauer, a veteran of the Battle of Guadalcanal, of whose face once said it looked like a clenched fist. <laughs> Needless to say, one punch from, El- from one punch from Hank Bauer, and this guy was carried out for an ambulance. That's a story. So my father said, I'll tell you what, Yogi, you tell me what happened, and I'll lead you and the Yankees out from the secret entrance from when this place was a speakeasy. (laughs) And he did. And the next day, my father began his column by saying, there are now three great battlefields in American history, Gettysburg, Iwo Jima, and the Cub Room at the Copacabana. (laughs) And two weeks later, after baseball's most infamous or famous off-the-field fight, Billy Martin was traded to Kansas City. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's terrific uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the documentary one of the things that's uh, un, a little unusual about what they're doing with this documentary is apparently it's not on streaming which is a little unusual these days in that a lot of things are released both concurrently in yeah. theaters and on streaming they want people to actually go to the theaters and see it w- what do you think of that uh, Jeffrey it seems like more and more people it's been over a year since I was in a movie theater and I used to really enjoy going to the movies it seems like more and more people People prefer the comfort and the convenience of being able to watch the films at home. Do movie theaters have a future? And is this strategy of making people go to the movie theaters to see uh, the Yogi documentary, is that a strategy that makes sense? I don't think so. I, you know, I, I love the idea of the, the, the communal feeling. I remember I saw The Exorcist at a critic screening. 
But there was a big screening of no, no, that was that was not a critic screening. That was a opening night screening, and all the critics were there. That's different than a screening and for critics where you'd sit in a small room, and you can't get away, you can't leave. You can, but you don't want to leave, and that might go the way of 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 of, of I don't know what the the, the Edsel maybe. Because I think in the long run, people will say it's expensive. You've got to get a babysitter. You've got to pay for gas and parking and meals and all that. And it's much better to see it at home on a big screen. Mm. So I, I hope they last forever. But I wouldn't invest in a theater uh, chain. I really wouldn't. It, you've been uh, reviewing films, I guess, since the 1970s, right? Since 1970, 1970, November 20th, 1970. The first movie was Albert Finney and Scrooge. <laughs> Do you remember what review you gave it? I liked it. I, the only time I, I'm not saying I'm perfect. You know, my niece, uh, 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 Margaret Lyons, writes the column in the lower left-hand corner of the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, on the, the weekend section, mm-hmm. which comes out on Fridays. And my father would have really loved to see his, his granddaughter's byline in the New York Times every week. And one time I was sitting at a screening talking to Tony Scott, one of the Times critics, and I told him how proud I was of my niece. And uh, her her editor of that page was sitting a few rows ahead, and he said, oh, yeah, she's great to be with. And I yelled, as you like to do through a megaphone, I yelled, bigger font, please, and bold letters on her byline. (laughs) And and so... uh, I, I, I forgot your question, though. Well, it was just uh, it, well, it was I didn't get to finish it. I was actually just uh, prefacing that you've been reviewing films from the 1970s. You've been on NBC for a while. You did Channel 11 in New York for a long time. But I, I think one of the things that sort of brought you to national acclaim was when you took over as the uh, co-host of Sneak Previews from those and, other guys. Yeah. Hated well, no. Hated well, us. let me ask you this, right? So Siskel and Ebert, right? They were the first hosts, mm-hmm. and then. And they left, and then you took over with uh, two different partners, including right. Michael Medved, who's uh, great as a talk show host in his own right. And you, the show ran for another 14 years. So the show was successful even Thank after they much. left. And with Neil Gabler was my first host. That's co-host. right. That's right. Uh, the, and we beat him in the ratings quite often. We had a PBS budget for publicity, and they were doing The Tonight Show and then saying, you know, one night, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but I will say that one night they were sitting next to Sandy Dennis, the Tony Award-winning actress who was in, you know, uh, a lot of movies too, and they're saying that they not knocking her as her her acting, sitting next to her, and did they pretended to hate each other? That's all nonsense. And Ebert once said, uh, "Oh, only reviews should come out of the Midwest, not New York." You know, that's nonsense. Well, the, they, my they, question uh, was is was going to be, what was it like to take over for a show that was already so well established? Because we've seen uh, both in cable news, we've seen certainly in the world of talk radio, uh, late night TV like The Tonight Show. Sometimes the transition can go very well, like Johnny Carson taking over for Jack Maher. Other times we've seen the transition go very poorly, like Conan O'Brien taking over for Jay Leno. Was there a lot of pressure uh, coming into a show that was already successful how did that work i think it made it easier for us really? i knew what the, i knew what to expect and we quickly identify we, we, we quickly established our own identities and didn't hate each other and uh, neil gabler was uh, uh, i think he was right, born in chicago but lived in new york so we flew back together i did 600 flights between new york and chicago over 12 seasons and we would beat those guys and you know what we made a few joint appearances 
and they made sure that they were the last ones into the <laughs> to the podium. Nonsense like that, you know. And and apparently uh, Siskel wouldn't. He made sure that they wouldn't start the screening without him. So these people who wrote for neighborhood papers would miss their trains because he showed up late in tents. All that kind of stuff is silly. You know, it's it's reviewing movie. It's not feeding homeless people or helping, you know, uh, migrants. It's it, it's it's reviewing movies, and it, it it was a lot of fun. It was twelve years, but they didn't, you know, they they weren't big time. When I look at PBS now, and I look at it all the time, I love a lot of shows. I call the midwife we watch, and many many others. You see commercials that look like commercials on regular TV. Right. And the last year of our show, nineteen ninety six. We would have. I think they were going to. A car company was going to was going to run commercials, and somebody at PBS said, "Oh, the car is moving. We don't want to use. We can't use." My that. goodness! My yeah, goodness! That's the small mind that that that, that ended the show. I I, I got to ask you. Speaking of baseball, before we uh, run out of time, this is the first season of these new baseball rules. <laughs> I was very I was very skeptical of how these rules would work out, uh, and I have to tell you, I am enjoying the shorter games. I don't like the yeah. universal DH. I don't like that ghost runner in extra innings. I don't like the limit on the uh, throwing over to first base to try uh, in terms of pickoff attempts, but I do like that it doesn't take three and a half hours to watch nine innings of baseball. How- I, I like the DH in both leagues. You know, a friend of mine is Rich Hill. He's been in the big league since 2004. He's the oldest player in baseball. He's a terrific pitcher. Now he's pitching for Pittsburgh. Played for the Red Sox three different times. That's where I got to know him. And he likes the rules bigger base i'm not uh, apparently the, it, it's safer that way you know manny machado supposedly ruined uh the dustin pedroia's leg by a slide in and none of that's going to happen but it's almost too easy to steal the base but you take the bad with the good the announcers my friend joe castiglione the red sox announcer who is my brother from another mother says less time for us to chat but we get home a half an hour <laughs> earlier and it's it's better also people want you know, look look now there's a lot of the stadium stadia are empty or they're empty seats, and they can't have that. The, the the demographics for baseball is way too high for for, right. for 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 the future. So I think it helps a lot. You take some of the things. I think the ghost runner should be in the in the eleventh inning or the tenth and in the eleventh inning, not the tenth inning. But that's that that's minor. All the players seem to have adjusted to it perfectly. So it's just that the stolen base, uh, uh, the bigger base, makes it easier. That's for you know sure. Who's, you know the Ricky Henderson stole third base. I think three hundred and twelve times. <laughs> it, that, third base. That does doesn't surprise me. Uh, that doesn't surprise me one bit. If you were to pick, if you had to pick, and you can only name one, the best baseball movie of all time, what is it? You, I, you can't really pick that. I can tell you the one that affected me the most. Sure. Field of Dreams. Even Field though of Dreams. every time I would interview the late Ray Liotta, bless his heart, he knew the last question was coming when I say, how could you bat right-handed playing Shoeless Joe Jackson. <laughs> Babe Ruth patterned his swing after Shoeless Joe Jackson. You know why Babe Ruth wore number three, by the way? Because he batted third. Batted third. Same thing reason Lou, Lou Gehrig wore number you know four. My dream, is, my dream is to be a contestant on Jeopardy, but I'd never go on without my wife. Today's categories, British literature of the 1950s, you know, that kind of... But, sure. But uh, I would go on Jeopardy, and, and it would be only baseball questions, and one answer would be Lou Gehrig, right? So I would say... Henry Gehrig, and they'd say, no, no, you won't get it right, it's Lou Gehrig, and then they go to the commercial, and they come back and they say, 
uh, we've just done our research. His first name was Henry. Yeah. And I feel great. And, and Lou Gehrig won number four because he batted fourth. I am looking forward to seeing that question in that category in today's edition of Jeopardy! Masters. Jeffrey. Oh, yeah, I'm watching that. It's, it, how are you, it's, it's pretty good, isn't it? It's fun. It, it is good. Holzhauer is a machine. He it's is true. unbelievable. He, uh, when you see him miss a question, you say, how did that happen? And he, he did miss a question. It was a, an, an easy subject of Haitian history, you know. Yeah, although he missed Final Jeopardy a couple of days yeah. ago, uh, which was very rare, and he bet all his money. It was. I uh, got to meet Alex Trebek. We we, we began to co- we we corresponded a little bit, and I sat next to him at Robert Osborne's uh, memorial service, and I said, "You know what? The greatest Final Jeopardy question I ever saw was." He said, "What?" I said, "This United States senator opened the London Zoo." In 1939, it's a trick question because you're thinking to think, oh, gosh, who was a senator? No, no, Ted Kennedy. He cut the ribbon. His father was ambassador. And he pulled out a piece of paper and said, we've never done that. And he wrote it down. So far, it's not been used. That's uh, great. We may yeah. use that on Ask Frank Anything if it doesn't make Jeopardy. That's right. That'll be one of yours. Or on, uh, yeah, $1,000 Minute. Not Ask Frank Anything. $1,000 Minute. Jeffrey, it's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you, my friend. I look forward to the next one, and keep it up. Absolutely. People should check out Jeffrey's uh, latest book. It's Hemingway and Me. Whatever you're into, Jeffrey Lyons has a a book for it. You go to Amazon, type in Jeffrey Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. If you're interested in movies, there's books about uh, great movies for kids. If you're interested in baseball, there's books about the Boston Red Sox and baseball history. You're interested in old Broadway, uh, check out the books that he's written about his uh, his dad. You're interested in Hemingway and literature, check out Hemingway and Me. Jeffrey Lyons... uh, has an ability to scratch every intellectual itch, that's for sure. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.